Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Later in the program, from Emory University, Vice Chair of the Department of Epidemiology in the Rollins School of Public Health, Professor Jody Guest talks about the pandemic's toll on rural Georgia. What we really see across the state of Georgia is that COVID-19 has broke open all of the generational inequities that we have in our state and is really making us talk about them, which may be the only shining spot in all of this, is that for once we might be getting the attention of um, people who can really make changes to say, we have a lot of folks who are living with incredible inequities and we have got to have that conversation. Well, that conversation is coming up in just a moment. And in related COVID-19 news, an update on the virus here in Georgia. Data from the State Department of Health indicates there are 79,417 confirmed COVID-19 cases right here in the state. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,784. And 10,824 are hospitalized. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Health as of today. Also, due to the pandemic, election officials had to implement changes regarding voting here in the state, and it wasn't a smooth process for voters earlier this month. So now, Georgia's largest voting location ever will be located right here in Atlanta, State Farm Arena. Here's Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena CEO Steve Coonan in a press conference Monday. The NBA 2020-21 season will start this year in December rather than the traditional October opening. This change gave us a very unique opportunity to create this unique largest polling place in Georgia. Now, we'll utilize our arena for all aspects of voting. Partnership opens on July 20th for early voting in the August 11th runoff election. In October, we will turn the arena's practice court and media room into election central. We will be providing a spacious, safe, and secure environment for tabulating all the mail ballots that come into Fulton County. And later in October, we will host early voting for the November general election. Our 700,000 square foot building will allow for CDC requirements, including social distancing. And we should note for clarity, as of right now, State Farm Arena will not be used on election day just for the runoff and early voting for the general election. And because of this new option, Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts says in August, things will go more smoothly. This will be a super duper location for Fulton County and in fact become our election central. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that we were not the worst as it was reported in many quarters on June 9th, but we will go from the proverbial worst to 
1st in August and November as a result of this collaboration. Now, Chairman Pitt says the goal is to have 40 percent of voters to vote by mail, 40 percent to vote early and 20 percent of voters to, well, vote on Election Day in November. In other news, former Atlanta police officer Garrett Roth has a bond hearing scheduled for 2 p.m. today. Roth faces felony murder and other charges in relation to the killing of Rashard Brooks. You'll recall Brooks was fatally shot outside an Atlanta fast food restaurant two weeks ago. Now, Roth's attorney, Noah Pine, says his office has given the Georgia Bureau of Investigation three cell phone videos from an eyewitness to support his client's case. He says Roth should be released on bond. And finally, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp gave his approval of the General Assembly's 2021 budget today. It rounds up to about $26 billion. Yes, this budget reflects our values as a state. It funds core services and protects the vital mission of our state agencies. This budget prioritizes education, health care, and public safety. It puts people over politics and it helps ensure a safer, stronger tomorrow for all Georgians. But this budget speaks to some of the quite honestly hard choices made by state leaders to streamline and innovate. Those hard choices, well, $2 billion in spending cuts was needed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Also today, the governor is traveling throughout the state, urging Georgians, as he tweeted, quote, wear a mask, practice social distancing, wash hands regularly, and follow the guidance provided by health officials. Let's do the right thing and stop the spread of COVID-19 in Georgia. Close quote. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia's total number of confirmed COVID-19 cases reached more than 77,000 this weekend. Now, health officials reported more than 2,200 cases alone on Sunday. That's a record number of cases in one day for Georgia. Now, rural Georgia has been especially hard hit by the virus. And according to the Associated Press, Half of the top 10 counties with the highest death rate per capita in the U.S. are located in what's considered rural southwest Georgia. And new spots are emerging in the northern pockets of the state as well. That's something our next guest has been studying for the past several weeks now. Jody Guest is vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. She joins me now. Professor Guest, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I want to begin here because... We've been hearing for the last maybe week or so, these numbers are going to explode. Now, we don't have to get into the politics of it all, because in your area, you're concerned about people's health, unless you want to get into the politics. But the bottom line is we are finally seeing this surge that everyone was talking about. What do you make of that? Yes, unfortunately, the predictions were probably correct. And we are seeing increasing numbers in the state of Georgia. And these are not the kind of records we want to be breaking. So... Is it fair to say this is maybe not the second wave, but this is just the surge from the first wave? That's correct. We have not finished our first wave. Um, I wish we had. I wish we were far enough along to be talking about a second wave, but we are still head on into our first wave in the state of Georgia. Meanwhile, Georgia's number of hospitalizations has risen since the beginning of June. The Georgia Emergency Management Agency reported Saturday that 27 percent 
of the critical care beds remain available. That's not a high number. Does that concern you as a as a medical official in this space? Twenty seven percent critical care beds. Yes, we would like that number to be thirty five to forty percent at least. And that's kind of one of the thresholds we look for is to make sure we have that many beds left. Through your lens, what do we know now more about this virus that we didn't know back, let's say, in March? So in March, we weren't talking about wearing masks. And that is probably one of the um, the pieces of information that was put out there early that we wish um, had been put out differently. Now we know masks are incredibly important for everyone and that we need a very large threshold of people wearing masks out in the public to stay safe. Well, doctor, let me ask you this. And again, this is through your lens. We see people in parts of the country going to the beach, which is fine, not wearing masks, even right here around Georgia on the Beltline, not wearing masks, restaurants, not wearing masks. And then there's this whole debate of should there be mandatory mask wearing? What what do you make of that? Should there be a mandatory mask required for outside if you're going into an establishment? I would love to see more people masked. I really would. Um, it, it is concerning to me when I see large groups who don't have them on. Um, I think mandatory masks is a difficult, um, it's a difficult policy to put out there. I wish it were so strongly, um, strongly considered. Um, and I wish we saw all of our leaders wearing masks and that we were leading by example instead of having to make it mandatory. But I do think we need to get that message out there. This is one of the easiest and safest things that we should be doing, and it's part of your citizenship. It is part of being a good member of society. There had been so much conversation about, you know, who was likely to contract the virus, and particularly Mm -hmm. in certain areas, urban areas, and of course density was a part of that. But now we're hearing about rural parts of Georgia. In the beginning of this outbreak, we saw high numbers in southwest areas of the state, and we know about Doherty County. Now Mm -hmm. we're seeing these numbers in Glenn County, coastal Georgia, pockets of north Georgia. What do you make of this? So I think we've got lots of different hot spots across the state of Georgia, unfortunately, and they all have slightly different drivers. Some of them have some connections to each other, but not all of these hotspots have the same thing going on. Um, in Hall County and Northeast Georgia, where I've been working a lot since April, this is a um, Latino community outbreak. It's very heavily associated with poultry plant workers and, and their family members and their household members. Um, in rural South Georgia, we're seeing a lot of seasonal migrant pickers and farm workers who are at risk. In some of the Southeast areas, we're seeing um, It's very driven by poverty and a lot of underlying comorbid conditions. What we really see across the state of Georgia is that COVID-19 has broke open all of the generational inequities that we have in our state and is really making us talk about them, which may be the only shining spot in all of this is that for once we might be getting the attention of um, people who can really make changes to say, We have a lot of folks who are living with incredible inequities, and we have got to have that conversation. That was my next question, which was do the demographics of who's been impacted vary by area of the state? And I think you just answered that as opposed to when we 
all started covering this, there was a huge focus on black Americans and also those in, in high poverty areas within the urban communities. But as you just said, now this is starting to break apart and we're seeing these high numbers within every population. That's right. We really are. And, um, you know, the newest high numbers across the state are our young people. So adults 30 and under, so that's 18 to 30 year olds, they are our fastest growing group. And that's not a group that we originally spoke about. So in addition to um, masking being a, a difference from what we said back in March, the original data that showed that adults 65 and up were our really increased risk group and our, our high rates of fatalities are still accurate. But I think that message allowed everyone not in that age group to mm -hmm. think that they weren't at risk. And that has not been the case. And as we are out and about more in the state of Georgia than we were in March and April, what we're seeing is our younger folks are now starting to have very high rates compared to what they used to. In fact, um, in the month of June so far, the average age of new cases is mid-30s compared to the average age of mid-50s back in April. Well, those young folks, as I call them, mm -hmm. who are now at a high risk, but what does that say for those other populations that they may be around, like the grandparents or right. the aunts and uncles? Should we assume we're going to see an increase in confirmed cases in that number because of the connection with, with our young folks? Absolutely. I think it's really hard for people to consider every single decision they make is going to impact so many additional folks. And so it is impossible to walk around in your life and think I'm only gonna stay in my same age group. I'm only going to see people who have the same risk I do. You're invariably going to be near an older person, someone you love, someone who may have underlying conditions you're aware of or not even aware of. And you are bringing those risks home to them. I want to get your thoughts on this, and we're going to jump into the, what, the work you've been doing, the research. But there were some concerns that with the recent protests, that was also a, an area where folks, potentially you might see some increases in folks contracting the virus from those areas where the protests were taking place. What do you make of that? Well, I think it makes sense that we would be concerned about that. And it was a, um, it was a moment in time where public health officials actually took some heat because for the most part, we said, yes, these protests are absolutely worth the time and effort, but we had been saying stay home. And so they've seemed very contradictory. What has happened is we're now addressing two pandemics. We have a pandemic of COVID-19 and we have a pandemic of racism and we need to be addressing both of them. They're both public health problems that, um, and, Frankly, they're interconnected right now. COVID-19 is capitalizing on a lot of racism in our country. Um, I have been going out to a lot of protests with my students. We've been delivering masks and hand sanitizers, and we are thrilled to see that there is a large percentage of folks participating in, in protests who are wearing masks. Um, you can't stay socially distanced in a protest, that mm -hmm. is true. But if we all have masks on, we are we are reducing the risks by being um, that we would have just by being near each other. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Jody Guest. She's the vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. And we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic's toll. Now we're going to get into on rural areas of the state. You have been stationed in Hall County up in North Georgia for a while now. Take our listeners what you all have been doing up there. 
Sure. So we um, received a call from the Northeast Georgia healthcare system at the end of April asking for support and help as they worked with through and um, were concerned about the increasing rates of COVID-19 in their Latino population, particularly centered around their poultry plant workers. And so um, we went in and started doing a lot of listening and learning. Um, every time you go into a new location in a new community, you really need to listen to that community and, and learn from them mm -hmm. before you walk in and say, we know what we're up to. Um, and so we have been doing several different initiatives. We've been doing pop-up testing specifically associated with poultry plants. Um, some additional community pop-up testing. We've been doing some household um, work looking at poultry plant risk and how it spreads within a household. We've also been working with the local school systems, the, the Hall County School System and the Gainesville City Schools and riding their bus systems. They have been um, providing breakfast and lunch for all of their students who've been out of school and continuing through the summer months. Um, a lot of these children only get their meals for breakfast and lunch at school. So it's a really important um, continuation of that service. When you have a distribution system like that and you need to get public health information out into the community, you should, you should use that distribution system. It was already well trusted. So my student outbreak response team and I have been riding the buses using um, those meals as a way to talk to the children, to provide masks, to talk about how to wear the mask correctly and to get very specific prevention messaging into the hands of the children and the parents as they come out to receive the meals. What's the perception been like for you all and your team with the work you're doing? I would say Hall County has been amazing to work with. We have luckily partnered with one particular poultry plant who has really just been, in my mind, an exceptional advocate for his workers. He has put a lot of prevention measures in place. He um, has he is paying sick leave for his employees mm -hmm. if they are sick with COVID-19 or if their family members are. And that is removing a barrier to a lot of folks who don't want to get tested. Because if I get tested and I find out I'm COVID-19 positive, I may not be able, I will not be able to go to work. And I may not be able to afford not going to work. By continuing to pay them sick leave, he's actually making testing mm -hmm. um, something that they are very interested in doing. You know, Professor, you gave a media briefing last week on the effect of COVID-19 in rural Georgia. I'm going to play a portion of it for our, our listeners right now. What we found is that some of the communities that are most heavily and disproportionately affected by COVID-19 in our rural populations are also communities that are going to have a lot of issues um, with trust um, with some of the groups that would normally do testing. So we've been working really hard to build up the trust in those communities so that we are a safe place to come get tested. Trust is so important. We have had this conversation before with many Latino leaders up in Hall County, and they've all said that we had to gain their trust first. And that was a first step. And then they've all said now we feel like we've really got a, a hold on in terms of campaigns and awareness. You agree with that? I do. I think that what I've seen Hall County doing has been really the right way to approach earning the trust of a community. The um, There's a Hispanic Latino COVID-19 task force that I've been privileged to be able to sit in on. And um, it's a bunch of business owners who banded together and said, this is our community. We want to provide the best care, the best resources, the best messaging. And, um, and we've got to, um, we've got to do it together. 
And so I have seen really, really positive work done in Hall County. So positive work up in Hall County, but then let's go down south because you recently told the AP that farm workers in South Georgia have shown, quote, staggering rates of infection with up to 70% testing positive. But meanwhile, at those poultry plants you mentioned in Northeast Georgia, only up to 25% were found to be infected. What's the difference there? What's not working in South Georgia? I will tell you, I've not been down in the southwest part of Georgia during this outbreak. Um, it is actually an area I work in a lot um, normally with um, providing health care to seasonal and migrant pickers through Emory School of Medicine. Um, but I've not been down there during COVID-19. And so that is um, data from some of my colleagues who've been working on those outbreaks. There are some commonalities between um, the seasonal workers and the poultry workers in North Georgia and South Georgia, but there's some really big differences as well. The poultry workers of North Georgia are, um, they live there. This is their community all year long. And um, it behooves all the plant workers and the poultry workers to make sure that they protect their employees because they're, they are their year long employees Mm -hmm. in South Georgia. Um, it also behooves, it behooves everyone, by the way, to protect their employees. But um, this is a transient population. They come from Florida, they go through mm-hmm. Georgia, and then they're going to move up the seasonal picking stream up to North Carolina and then make it all the way up to Vermont or Maine. Um, they are only going to be in our state for six to eight weeks. It is a lot of community housing. You're riding um, to the fields in the morning on buses. You're coming home in the afternoon on buses. There is no ability to socially distance. In a poultry plant, you can put up dividers. You can put face masks on Mm -hmm. your employees. You can put screens and plastic dividers between workstations. You can't do that out in the middle of the field. And so um, some of it is the work environment. Some of it is um, a, a manager of a plant is probably more likely to know his employees mm-hmm. and um, his or her employees and um, and be able to work with them as a community, whereas the transient community in South, South Georgia is a little bit harder to reach. And then you also makes one wonder as they are traveling, and you just gave a great description of those that are traveling that might start in Georgia and work up through the Carolinas and on up to Vermont, that paints a picture of how long this virus could continue to be at a heightened level because we have a group of folks who are traveling, which we can't even really do any surveillance data on. Right. So every um, state needs to share with the state that they're going to be moving to next. Um, This is a population that has remained heavily unseen in our country. It's a population that most folks don't even know exists, um, that I think a lot of people don't know how their fresh produce appears in a grocery store and the stories of the folks who pick them and the life that they are living in our country. They've been considered um, essential employees from the very beginning. So there's been no time for um, them to be able to be isolated. If someone becomes sick, there's no room to isolate them within their living situation. Um, It's just really, uh, there's so many barriers to containing COVID-19 in this population that is really critical population to our country. They need a lot of attention and they deserve a lot of attention and support. I understand that Emory recently entered a new partnership to collaborate with the Georgia Department of Public Health. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So we are thrilled to be having an academic and public health partnership with the State um, Department of Georgia 
Georgia's Public Health Department. Um, Dr. Toomey and Dr. Curran um, and Dr. Allison Chamberlain, who's directing this from Emory, um, all really believe in, in this relationship being a win for the state of Georgia, as do I. I think it's incredibly exciting to see that kind of partnership form. This was due to a wonderful gift from the Woodruff Foundation. It's got four tenets to it. One is uh, for Dr. Chamberlain to really be a resource to the, to the state in um, looking at outbreaks and what should be going on in each of the outbreaks. One of the other sections is the one I've been working in by being an outbreak response team, being able to go in into a community and do pop-up testing in harder to reach communities. We have a um, fellowship program that's going to put Emory-trained epidemiologists in every single part of the state. Um, I think that that is going to have ripple effects that go way beyond COVID-19 and the mm -hmm. pandemic we are in right now. And then the last one is some of my colleagues, Dr. Patrick Sullivan and Dr. Aaron Siegler, are doing the first prevalence testing across the state of Georgia to really look at, um, if you take a representative sample, what does it really look like? Not just folks who are going to testing, but everyone else as well. What is your hope for this state in the next several weeks, since we haven't even hit, quote, the second wave? Perhaps that's a, a daunting question mm -hmm. to ask, but what is your hope for this state? Well, I do have a hope. I hope that we all start listening to the public health professionals who are asking folks to stay home as much as they can, to wear masks when they're out, to, to recognize that this is their contribution to their community. And I really would like to put on everyone's mind, we wanna open schools in the fall and we don't wanna do that when we're seeing an uptick in cases. We wanna do that when we see cases going down. And so to prepare for that, we should all stay home a little bit longer. We should all do what we did so well in March and April and socially distance as much as possible, recognizing we have an end game here. We want to open our schools. We want our children to go back, but we want them to do it safely. We want it to be safe for the teachers. Um, and so it's going to take a little bit more effort from all of us to be really good community members. And I have to tell you this, Professor Guest, because I talked to a little one who said they wanted to be an epidemiologist. They didn't pronounce it quite that way, but I knew what they were talking about when they grew up because of all this. What has been the takeaway for you as a scientist in this field right now with this virus? This is something that you all have never experienced. Well, it's an exciting time to be an epidemiologist. It's an overwhelming time to be an infectious disease epidemiologist. My entire work life has changed drastically since March um, I do a lot of teaching. I work very closely with students and um, it's a fascinating time to be in this with them. And um, we, you know, we thought in the fall when I was teaching that the vaping epidemic was an amazing time to be in school for public health. Mm -hmm. And basically January said, well, watch this. And vaping epidemic was nothing compared to what we're <laughs> going to show you now. And so um, I think it's, I love public health. I've always loved it. I love being an epidemiologist. I'm specifically an infectious disease epidemiologist, and it is gratifying for everyone to now know what we do. Um, that's pretty exciting. I really hope that public health can get back to the place it used to be where it wasn't political. I would love to see that. I think everyone's health, our community and our country's health, our world's health should be above politics. Um, it is disheartening to see so much of this become political. Um, 
And I really hope that as public health is now an epidemiologist or a household name, that we get back to that space where we recognize that this is, this is for the good of everyone. Over the decades, we've seen um, epidemiology tends to work pretty quietly. We put a lot of prevention measures in place, but we have drastically changed life expectancy in this country. And um, that is our goal. Our goal is to stay in that realm. And we appreciate that. But however, how do we find an epidemiologist Halloween costume for a little six-year-old? Where do I go? (laughs) I don't really know. I mean, everyone used to think that we either studied skin or bugs or, you know, skin didn't know how to say it. But isn't that amazing to think that people might want to grow up to be epidemiologists now? Um, So for me, I guess you would be walking around either in PPE this year or more traditionally, you'd be walking around with a notebook and a computer. (laughs) We'll figure it out. Jody Guest is vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for educating our listeners. Keep us posted on the work you're doing up in Hall County. I sure will. Thank you so much for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As calls for change and racial justice continue across the country, look out and you'll see a lot of the organizers are not millennials, but the generation that's a bit younger. You know, those born between 1995 and 2015. Now, that's something I recently talked about with Kayla Smith. She was a rising senior and social justice fellow at Spelman College. She joined me earlier this month as part of our week-long series, After the Protests, What's Next Atlanta? And Kayla reflected on a moment she first saw Atlanta police officers tasing two of her fellow AUC students, 20-year-old Tania Pilgrim and 22-year-old Morehouse student Messiah Young. All I could hear and just process were Tania's screams. That was the first thing, actually, that struck me when I saw the video. And that night, um, all of my friends from the AUC, we were checking in on each other, calling each other, trying to see if anyone knew um, the whereabouts of Tanaya Messiah personally. We were mobilizing, but we were also checking on each other's mental health in the process. Kayla and other HBCU students mobilized and came together to protest. It was called hashtag HBCUs for Black Lives. But of course, This isn't the first time HBCU students have mobilized for change. It's a history that dates back decades. And joining me now is Dr. Jelani Favors, Associate Professor of History at Clayton State University. He's the author of the award-winning book, Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black College Fostered Generations of Leadership and Activism. Dr. Favors, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. As you look out and you see with these past protests and you see whom we call a lot of young folks out there, it does remind you of the early sixties and, and the students from the AUC and, and how they mobilized under 
the words and, and leadership of, of Dr. King and so many other folks, to, it takes you back to that moment a little bit. Absolutely. And there's a certain energy about it. There's a certain uh, look about it. And, you know, my hope is that in the same way in which Black colleges served as a catalyst and as a springboard for not just discourse, but for action, that they can continue in that and they can seize this moment and seize this energy uh, and find ways to continue to promote what we are seeing in the streets and what the voices that we're hearing from young folks out here, give them a space where they can, again, not just articulate these concerns, but also uh, be informed and be directed in the proper ways in which to address these systemic issues. And what do you make of the use of social media? You know, back in the day, it used to be you put up a flyer or you put up posters. And now with the use of social media, this generation really uses that to mobilize. Because often with these past protests, and I've asked people, well, you know, I said, I didn't, I didn't hear you. I'm used to getting an email about a press release. These young folks don't write press releases. They get, <laughs> they go to Twitter and Instagram, you know, right. social media. Right, right, right. What do you make of the, the, them using social media as that, that tool? It's, it's a double-edged sword. I think that social media has been extremely beneficial in highlighting that, not only social media, but the ability to capture these assaults and these murders in real time and convey that to the masses. That's something that the generations that preceded did not have. Imagine if someone would have been able to capture Emmett Till's murder right mm-hmm. on video right all we could rely on was jet magazine and the image that shocked the world but now we're seeing daily images of that so social media has been very very useful but my concern as a social movement historian is are we going to be able to see a, a movement or are we going to see a moment and a lot of times social media often yields to the moment it's what's hot right now and so i hope that in some way there can be some sustainability Um, that that energy that we're seeing can continue to move forward? Or or is this just something that is trending right now, right? And this is where, again, institutions become very vital, right? Not just Black colleges, but predominantly white institutions, churches, uh, institutions that have long served the community, organizations. This is where we have to have a sort of boots on the ground mentality and to nurture this energy uh, and to provide a space where, because you can't just do this in cyberspace, right? You know, you have to be able to, to again, corral students, corral this energy, and to be able to hopefully, again, help them further articulate their concerns, but, but also to direct the energy in terms of where it needs to go to bring about sustained change. This generation, and might be a generation or two, removed from the height of the civil rights movement. And so for some of them, it may be hard to connect that energy that you were just talking about. Is there a a model for them to borrow from the civil rights movement that maybe their grandparents and for some great grandparents were part of? Oh, without question. You know, as I say in my book, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC was the most powerful, the most effective organization that emerged out of that era. And this was powered by historically black colleges and it was comprised of majority historically black students who who came out of this. Uh, And there was a a, a network that they established, a model they established of organizing, of mobilizing. Uh, They were nurtured by past generations, powerful leaders such as Ella Baker. So again, it wasn't just a clergy-based movement. Uh, It was very much people like Ella Baker saying, look, these students, they've found something special. They've lit a, a spark. 
and, and they generated this mass movement throughout the South and mobilized for action um, throughout the South. And so we should be able to look at SNCC as, as a model for transformation and change moving forward and learn from their what they did well, as well as some of the mistakes that they Absolutely. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Jelani Favors, Associate Professor of History at Clayton State University. He's the author of Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Fostered Generations of Leadership and Activism. I want to dive into the past a little bit more because in the book, you go back to the 1830s, a chapter in our history where abolitionists were still fighting for freedom from slavery. Then in spring of 1837, the African Institute. I want you to take our listeners, give a little bit of history about that. Yeah, so Cheney State University was founded in 1837 as the Institute for Colored Youth. Uh, it was founded in Philadelphia. Um, but this kind of served as a template moving forward of what black colleges were going to be. Uh, they were going to be a space where not only were students being educated on, on math and science and Greek and Latin, but they were gonna use that knowledge system, that knowledge base to attack social issues, to deal with problems con confronting the black community. And that's really what HBCUs have historically done. So beginning again in 1837, you begin to see Cheney State University emerge. Lincoln College followed in 1854, was founded as the Ashman Institute. Wilberforce, founded by the African Methodist Episcopal uh, Church. All these, these, these institutions are emerging, but again, these institutions become springboards for activism. They become, uh, uh, again, a model uh, for how we generate a counter narrative in the midst of this era. This is the, we're talking about the mid to, to late 19th century where mm -hmm. racism and, and, and white supremacy are becoming further and more deeply entrenched into American society. And so black colleges provided a critical space where black youth could be affirmed, where they could be uh, uh, nurtured, but also where they could be given this mission become engaged in deconstructing white supremacy, attacking Jim Crow. And that's what we see with the legacy of these institutions. With the remaining HBCUs that we have, and you and I both know the plight of HBCUs, not just now, but for the last maybe two or three decades, from an administrative standpoint, do you feel there is a disconnect, though, with the administration of some of these HBCUs and the students when it comes to the students being involved in, in social justice initiatives? I think clearly that's an issue. In fact, I talk about it in the epilogue of my book uh, where, uh, you know, again, what really kind of powered much of this activism and conscientious uh, efforts of students was what I refer to as the second curriculum. Mm -hmm. uh, in my book, and that second curriculum was composed of race consciousness, idealism, and cultural nationalism. And for generations, that informed, uh, that shaped uh, how young people moving through these spaces, how they saw the world and how they should address the world. And what we see, especially towards the latter half of the 20th century, many of these institutions, they began to um, not jettison, not dismiss, but they began to emphasize uh, disciplines, uh, they began to emphasize and embrace uh, um, uh, ideas um, that were, that did not run parallel with 
uh, uh, the, the second curriculum. So that is embracing corporate dollars. That is trying to play the catch-up game of, of, of funding our institutions, which meant that they had to court STEM programs, mm -hmm. right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. And in doing so, that really it gutted the humanities, which had always been really kind of the source of this activism. It gutted the, the humanities and historically black colleges and universities. And so in the last 30, 40 years, black colleges have really kind of transformed and changed. They're not those sort of classic spaces where the humanities can power uh, idealism and race consciousness in the same way which it did for students of SNCC and in and, and the 40s and the 50s and the early 20th century. Um, and so uh, my concern is moving forward, will black colleges be able to harness that this energy that we see, because this is, I think it's a very important crossroads that we're, that we're looking at here. And HBCUs, they're in a very interesting space right now, right? You mm know, -hmm. I think that as we stated earlier at the, at the beginning of the interview, we're, they're needed now more than ever, right? You see Spelman students and Morehouse students out here in the streets of Atlanta uh, um, articulating these concerns about white supremacy. But when they return to school in the fall, what type of space will they be returning to? Is it going to be a space that once again serves as a springboard for this activism and for this energy? Or are we going to simply go and move forward as we often have in terms of pushing them into STEM pro? And again, I'm not trying to denigrate STEM or talk mm -hmm. bad about the engineering and the sciences and the math. We need those disciplines, but we also need them to be connected to the freedom dreams of black people and to, and to people who love humanity and justice in general. And I think that's what we've seen erode over the last 20, 30 years or so is being able to, to craft a space uh, where we can see social activism, uh, where we can see a strong critique of white supremacy and how do we deconstruct that? This is what HBCUs have to, they have to return back to that model because that's exactly what uh, ultimately brought about this revolution of the 1960s, HBCUs serving as that type of space. And because this has been a focus of yours for so many years now, I'd like to know how this became more than just a passion for you. Well, you know, I was a graduate student at The Ohio State University in Columbus, and I'm a graduate of North Carolina Ante State University, which is where the sit-ins, where they launched mm -hmm. in, on February 1st of 1960. So we talked about the sit-ins a lot uh, when I was a student. And so when I arrived at Ohio State, I said, look, I don't want to do anything else dealing with student activism. But I was really encouraged by um, professors such as Dr. William Nelson, Jr., uh, to, who, who said, look, you know what, you need to be able to dig deeper and look at this. In fact, he said that this field is really wide open. Uh, people like Dr. Barbara Gordon, mm -hmm. uh, who was a, uh, a professor of, of education. I took a class of hers in history of black education. And this is where I really did begin to see that, yeah, people really had not talked about the role that black colleges had played uh, within the liberation of, of black people. We've talked we talked about colorism, we've talked about conservatism, we've talked about all the other things that define black college life, but we had not yet talked about how you actually produce people like Ella Baker, how you produce people like Stokely Carmichael, how do you produce people like John Lewis or Diane Nash, because this is what these institutions had done historically, and they had done this by implementing a second curriculum. So uh, when I graduated in 2006, I had done a, a dissertation, which was a comparative study of, of Jackson State University in Tougaloo, and my mentor and dissertation advisor, Dr. Hassan Jeffrey, said, look, you know what, I think you should broaden this. I think you should expand this and tell a much broader story. And so I brought in five additional schools 
to that narrative. And that's where this research project was really born. And if folks are not familiar with the Greensboro sit-ins, that was so crucial, almost in the beginning of, of SNCC, which you mentioned, and also changing at the time a very notable and prominent Woolworth. I, I Look, I'm from St. Louis. I remember going to Woolworths growing up. But Woolworths, like a lot of entities, like a lot of businesses, had a, a racial segregation policy. Those sit-ins changed that. One thing I want to get your thoughts on, too, because we talked about this after the, the protests a few weeks ago, was how do we take then the the anger and, and even for some the rage and the protests, and how do we take that and turn it into actionable outcomes? And again, this is where I think institutions in general, not just historically black colleges, but all institutions, Clayton State University, Emory, University of Georgia, this is where they can be effective. And that is we have to wrap that energy within a discourse that, again, informs, that enlightens, that educates, so students can understand that the same systemic issues that we're confronting now are not new, right? That they have, these are generational. They have impacted this country from the very beginning. Uh, I I listened to an interview that my mentor, Dr. Hassan Jeffries, uh, uh, did just yesterday, actually, on Instagram Live. And, you know, he put it best. He said that we have to learn how to own the past. That's what America has never really done. Right? We've never really owned our past of who we are. But the moment that we begin to own that past and understand and see that these issues truly are deeply embedded into our, our fiber, to our DNA, this is where we learn that, hey, we reform. It's almost impossible. We have to deconstruct. We have to rebuild. And, and in order to do that, we're going to need a vision of what type of society that we can and should be building. And this is where, again, institutions could play a critical role in helping us understand and learn and channel that energy into, into re- not just reformation, but also into, again, reconstructing and rebuilding a better, a more just, a more inclusive society. Um, Black colleges can play that role. Predominantly white institutions can play that role if we're willing to embrace that challenge. And so, Professor, as we wrap up, because we're in this space now where the national conversation is about race and racism and whether it stems from the tragic killing of George Floyd, the ongoing concerns about policing in communities of color, Ahmaud Arbery, a young man who's jogging, and is basically, in a sense, for some, they say he was lynched. So we're in this space now where we're talking, having these these national conversations about race and about racism and asking white folks to look inside themselves and acknowledge the past and acknowledge their implicit biases and all of that. So we're in that space, right? Everybody's talking about that. As someone said to me, if we don't make any progress now, then will we ever? Because we're now having this national dialogue about all of this well i mean you know again it, we we've been here before right you know i talked to my students about uh uh, uh the kerner commission in, in 1968 which was established by the lyndon baines johnson mm-hmm. uh administration and in the kerner commission one of the conclusions that they came out in atlanta was one of those cities where the commission visited visited and and they did research and studies all in an attempt to say hey what's wrong with america why why was america exploding with these race riots in in 1968 in 1969 and one of the conclusions of that uh committee in 1968 the kerner commission was that police brutality is a problem this is 1968 that's 50 years ago 
right? 52 years ago to be exact. And so if the current commission can say, hey, police brutality is a problem and we do have systemic racism within our, our country and it's, it's the root cause of this frustration, we fast forward 52, 52 years later, what have we learned, right? Mm -hmm. it, police brutality is still a problem. Systemic racism is still a, a, a defining the lives of, of black folks in this city and throughout this country and really throughout this world, right? Uh, and, and so I'm hopeful that, uh, of this energy, but again, it's going to take a all hands on deck effort. And this is what, what is encouraging about this moment. I really don't want to call it a movement yet because it's only been two or three months, right? We're going to see moving forward if we can take a moment and really translate it into a movement. But what has been encouraging is that we do see a very diverse population of people taking to the streets, demanding change. Um, it's very heartening to see young white folks deeply engaged. This, this does not suggest that, again, there weren't white people involved in the civil rights movement, because clearly there were. But across the globe now, we're seeing images of people taking to the streets in London, in Paris, uh, it, uh, throughout the continent of Africa, people demanding change. And so again, I, I hope that institutions, when, these, when colleges return in the fall, if we return in the fall, but when and if colleges return and resume, we're going to have to be able to develop a space where we channel this energy Again, create discourse uh, which which provides solutions to these problems and challenge students, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whatever, to to embrace the the again own our past, who we have been and who we are as a nation, and to understand how deep that rabbit hole really goes, and and to root out white supremacy wherever we find it, um, to root out classism wherever we find it, to root out uh, forms of prejudices and discrimination wherever we find it in order to create, again, a, a, a more just and more inclusive society. This has to become a mission uh, of the institutions that we hold dear. Uh, they can't simply be spaces where we uh, root and cheer on our, our favorite college teams and celebrate step shows and, and bands and the culture and the pageantry of, of college life, they have to become spaces where we strongly critique uh, the problems and the chasms uh, that confront us and to find a way to heal and to bridge across that divide. Otherwise, again, we'll see yet another scenario where we uh, have a moment and not a sustained movement for change. Dr. Jelani Favors, Associate Professor of History at Clayton State University. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.